0: there's probably no better day to visit the nation of Liechtenstein than on its national holiday,
1: August 15th. It's really sort of a miracle that this country actually still exists as a sovereign country, Rick. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Dave Seminar describes
0: the scene in one of Europe's tiniest and most improbable nations. To get away from the crowds in England, visit the treeless, wild moorland.
2: Oh, it's some of the most evocative scenery in the British Isles, and you find it throughout the British Isles. Guides from Britain take us into the lonely
0: beauty of the Moors. One of my favorite ways to cool off in the summer heat of Italy is with gelato. And true to form, Italian culinary standards are high to make every calorie worthwhile.
3: The secret of Italian gelato is to keep
0: it simple, fresh ingredients, and it's made daily. Visit Liechtenstein the moors of England and savor the best gelato in Italy. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll find out why the gelato they sell in Italy's version of an ice cream parlor tastes so much better than what you usually find at your local supermarket. And we'll hear what you should look for to make sure you're getting the real thing. Plus, the stark beauty of the English moors provides a great getaway for hiking with only the breeze and perhaps a flock of sheep for company. Two of our favorite travel guides from England inspire us to explore the Moorlands a little later in the hour today on Travel with Rick Steves. Of all the countries we've talked about over the years on Travel with Rick Steves, there's one in Europe that I think has never come up until now, the tiny Principality of Liechtenstein. It's got fewer than 40,000 citizens, nestled in a little corner of the Alps between Switzerland and Austria. Its citizens have the third highest per capita income in the world. The country was once known mostly for its postage stamps, and lately it's been attracting manufacturing for its low corporate taxes. It also attracted travel writer Dave Seminara to take his family there just in time for its national holiday. And Dave joins us right now to talk about what he learned. Dave, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Rick. I appreciate it. What
0: a cool idea for your book. Your book, "A Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats, Dispatches from the Margins of Europe. And when we think about Liechtenstein, it falls through the cracks, doesn't it, in a lot of ways?
1: Oh, <laughs> it certainly does. I love going to obscure places like this, and especially, you know, little microstates. Um, I know a lot of people like to go to weird countries, small countries like this, just for the sort of the claim to fame of saying, hey, I've been there. Right but um this place has some very interesting claims to fame to it, and there's you know if you take the time to dig around a little bit, you find some interesting stuff
0: Well, you had a fun chapter about that sharing that,
1: and before we get into the, those kind of details let 's
0: talk about the country just in general. As I mentioned, it's squeezed in the Alps between Switzerland and Austria, and every time I drive through that area, I always find myself driving down the uh, freeway there right along the Rhine River, and the Rhine River is the uh, western border of Liechtenstein, and then it goes right up to the tops of the mountains there, which I guess is the border for Austria, and uh, the capital city of Vaduz is uh, 5,000 people. Describe what you find when you
1: tour Liechtenstein. As I think you pointed out from your visit, Rick, this is not a place you go really for sightseeing necessarily in terms of seeing museums and the sites and such. But what it does have is the great natural beauty of the Alps and the Rhine River Valley. And I think that's really the the star attraction here. But there are some other interesting geographical points about it to you as well, too. It's one of only two countries in the world that's doubly landlocked. Huh. It's also a country with no army. Uh, no airports, and uh, you don't actually even need your passport to get in there because the borders are completely unpatrolled and unmanned. There's no customs union.
0: Well, is it actually just kind of freeloading on Switzerland for the uh, those kind of bigger
1: state functions? It's a good question. Technically, Switzerland does not defend their borders. Um, I've asked about this, and if there were ever some sort of an emergency, male Lichtensteiners would be called up to defend the borders of the country, although they have had a customs agreement with Switzerland since 1924 and they use the Swiss franc but technically they are supposed to be defending their own borders if there was ever some sort of an emergency. So is is it actually
0: as independent as uh Luxembourg or Belgium or or other small countries?
1: It is. It's it's interesting. It's been completely uh independent since 1806 and it's really sort of a miracle that this country actually still exists as a sovereign country, Rick. I mean, you have to think about this as this was basically a Habsburg backwater that you know, even Hitler did not bother to capture when he annexed Austria in 1938. There were really no resources there, nothing strategic about it, and it was essentially just ignored. And it was really a poor sort of agrarian country until after World War II when some of their sovereigns had the good sense to sort of court some industry. Pretty soon you had some manufacturing, you had a number of banks that took off, and uh, over a period of let's say 40 to 50 years, it went from being this very poor country where their citizens would have to walk into Switzerland every day to find work, where now you have twenty to 25,000 people from Switzerland and Austria who actually commute mm. into Liechtenstein to work now. And as you pointed out, it's one of the richest countries in the world. So it's kind of a success story. It's quite a success story, and it's quite
0: small, and it's quite fortunate because it's got nice neighbors in a very stable part of the world that's wealthy anyways. You know, in Switzerland they're not on the euro. They've got their own Swiss franc. It's sort of an island of non-euro population. And to, I think, a, a great degree, that's because they make a lot of money by allowing anonymous banking. So people who have money they want to hide out can have a bank account in Switzerland, and and the Swiss have standards that are different from the standards that countries that have the euro have, and they don't want to meet the European requirements because that would be very costly for their banking industry. And Liechtenstein has the same kind of industry, doesn't it? They have the Swiss franc, and they've got a lot of people using their banking system.
1: That's correct. There's 15 big banks there, Rick, And the crown prince uh, is the chairman of one of them. However, a lot of the Swiss banking rules, the privacy rules, they changed in 2008. And both Switzerland and Liechtenstein were sort of forced to do away with a lot of that privacy. That anonymity that used to exist does not exist anymore. So that Hmm. caused a little bit of a blip in the economy of Liechtenstein around 2008, 2009, 2010. And there was also the crown prince's bank. There was a gentleman who worked at the bank who actually sold the information of many thousands of basically tax cheats to the German, U.S., and I believe French tax authorities. Oh, my goodness. He sold this information to them and is now in exile in Australia. He made a whole bunch of money, basically. He made a lot of money and a lot of enemies. (laughs) Well, he's still a wanted man in Liechtenstein. There's apparently still a warrant for this guy's arrest is considered i believe a traitor amongst the financial and banking community in Liechtenstein but things have changed a little bit the privacy that existed in the banking sector uh, even 10 years ago does not right. exist anymore
0: okay. but banking still a big part of their economy i guess
1: it's still something like 25% of their gdp oh. and i think mm-hmm. manufacturing is about 40% but yeah it's still very big and this is they have uh, the royal family there is one of the richest royal families in europe and they're mm-hmm. worth I don't know, six or seven billion dollars and most that of that right? is from banking. So well, that's right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dave Seminara. Dave's written a book
0: called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats. Dispatches from the margins of Europe and one of his chapters covers Liechtenstein. I believe you mentioned that it's it's such a Charming little family-feeling country that when you get on the bus, the bus driver generally knows people's names.
1: Oh, absolutely. And if you have the Swiss travel pass, by the way, this is a little-known fact that you can travel for free all over the buses of Liechtenstein. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's covered. So if you happen to have a Swiss train pass, you can ride around on the buses of Liechtenstein. And what a joy it is because they arrive to the second on time, Rick, (laughs) and the bus drivers uniformly speak English and are helpful. And the way people get on the bus and they know the bus driver's name and they exchange greetings with each other, it really is like a bit of Mayberry in the middle of the Alps. Now, Dave, you went there to be there
0: for the national holiday. That's August 15th with your family. Tell us uh, why you wanted to be there then and what it was like.
1: Right. So several years before, I had written a story about this uh, gentleman who represented his country, Liechtenstein, in the Davis Cup, which is like tennis's version of the World Cup when he was only 14 years old. He was the youngest person in the in the history of this tournament to play and when you're from a small little country like Liechtenstein and you're an athlete you've got a great chance to set records right because there aren't that many (laughs) people around so we had stayed in touch and he told me you know someday you should come visit and you should come on august 15th because this is our national day and well my wife had a a business meeting that she had in zurich and we thought we've got some time we decided let's be there for their big day and we were there for it Hmm. and what was that like well, it's an amazing day to be there. There's a huge outdoor party. So, you know, the, the royal family lives in the Vaduz castle, which is a 12th century castle, which is perched on a hill above the capital city. And I call it city, you know, it's a place with 5,000 inhabitants. So it's not mm-hmm. much of a city, but you can sort of march up a very steep hill above Vaduz towards this gorgeous 12th century castle which i think you have seen yourself right you know i love place. that
0: situation if you think about this
1: tiny little yeah. principality you could bike across it before
0: lunch and you got the cute little prince that's got his palace on the top of a bluff and he can stand in his front yard and survey his domain and I just, I love that. And to think that he opens his place up for this festival, is it actually like, hey, it's open house,
1: come on, meet the prince? No, no, it's not quite that good. Okay. They only open up the garden of the place. So okay. So they're not letting you inside the actual castle. If you want to get inside the actual castle, Rick, you have to be a citizen of the country who turns 18 years old. So this is the time when you're invited in. Uh, Lichtensteiner's the year that they turn 18, ah. are allowed to come into the castle for a special, like, 18-year-old party. Mm-hmm. And also, one other day of the year, they invite underprivileged children, of which there are not very many in Liechtenstein, but those mm-hmm. children are invited in one day of the year, too. But other than that, the interior of the castle is off-limits because the family actually lives there with their four children. You actually were there, and you got to meet the prince,
0: and, uh, yes. and it was like a uh, free lunch, or what was the deal?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, you have to suffer through uh, some speeches from politicians. So they do not open up the free bar. The royal family pays for an open bar uh, with kegs of beer and sandwiches and such. But first, you need to listen to some politicians give some speeches when everyone is kind of sitting around tapping their feet, looking over at the bar, which is not quite open yet. But first, you know, everyone's sitting there listening to the speeches. Okay, let's go. Let's go. And as soon as the speeches are over, they play the national anthem of Liechtenstein, which is set to the tune of God Save the Queen, which I just loved. Hmm. They do have their own lyrics, but it's set to God Save the Queen. Then they open up the bar, and there's a mad bum rush for the kegs of beer. <laughs> and then the music starts to play. There's a great oompah band. And people try to gravitate towards the royal family to get their photo taken and to say hello. Oh. And we were lucky because it started to rain. And uh, you know we were there for a long weekend. It rained almost the whole time. But the rain turned out to be very lucky for us because it scared some people away. And it started raining very hard, and we were able to inch closer and closer to the family, and we're getting very close to the crown prince. My wife was feeling very shy about it, and I said, we've got to go up to him and introduce ourselves. He had very little security. He had one gentleman holding the umbrella over his head, and he had another security guy behind him. But other than that, he's just sitting there drinking beer from a plastic cup just like anybody else, never Mm -hmm. mind the fact that he's got $7 billion in a castle.
0: I remember going there in the old days when there were more borders in Europe and tourists would collect stamps in their passports. We'd actually drive into the country to get a stamp in our passports with our tour groups. And we'd stop in Vaduz long enough to go to the post office and buy sheets of brand-new, never-used stamps. They were collector's items, and I still have these. I've got no idea what they're worth, but you really don't get a stamp in your passport like you did in the old days.
1: Uh, You can get one, actually, Rick. They understand the tourists would like to have one while they're there, so they actually sell them at the main visitor's information office. actually, oh, is that right? One visitor's information. And they cost only two euros. I actually had to wait in line to get mine. There's quite a few people so there. So that was your souvenir from Liechtenstein. That's right. It cost two euros and they
0: will stamp your passport for Very you. Very nice. Dave Seminara, thanks so much and uh, it's fun reading through your book, Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats. Thank you very much. Dave seminar specializes in travel and sports reporting, and you'll often find his articles in major newspapers and magazines. Dave tells us more about Liechtenstein in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Guides from Italy take your calls in just a bit at 877-333-7425, as they tell us what to look for to make sure you're getting the very best gelato in Italy. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Later in the hour, we're off to the moors of England on Travel with Rick Steves. Warning, the following segment just might stimulate your appetite. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. When I see tour groups marching around under the midday sun in Italy... I always enjoy watching for that moment in their schedule when their guide takes them for a little time out from museums and historical sites to visit the neighborhood gelateria. That's Italy's version of the corner ice cream parlor. The satisfied look on their faces as they dig into their gelatos, it says it all. The Italians have been perfecting the art of frozen desserts for centuries. We're joined now by Alfio Di Mauro. He's a lifelong resident of Sicily, and Anna Pepperato, She's an American scholar of Italian art whose passion for Italy led her to settle in Tuscany. They're here to make sure you're enjoying the tastiest gelato in town, too. Anna, help you. Ciao. Ciao a tutti.
4: Ciao, buongiorno.
0: Buongiorno. I'm uh, dreaming about gelato. Me how, too. how can you say that in Italian?
4: <laughs> Sto sognando di gelato.
0: <laughs> I'm dreaming about gelato. Desidero un gelato. Desideron. I Desideron. desire <laughs> gelato. <laughs> yes. I, I do. Just tell me, Alfio, your your favorite gelateria and uh, the favorite flavor, and what kind of memories it inspires. Well,
3: memories of gelato they go back to when I was a toddler. My favorite gelato is coffee, mm-hmm. and there is a favorite gelateria I have, and they make a special gelato because the secret of Italian gelato is to keep it simple, fresh ingredients. Mm-hmm and it's made daily, Mm. okay? Sometimes we think that gelato stays for days and days and days, but actually it's good only for a couple of days, Mm. and
0: then it becomes too hard. So you know that if you go to your gelateria and they're trying to give you three-day-old gelato, Mm -hmm. you can tell?
3: Actually, if your gelateria has gelato all the time, three days, is not a good gelateria. (laughs) Because (laughs) actually in the summer, they have the the opposite. can come and go, and that's okay. In the summer, they have the opposite problem. They cannot make gelato fast enough. Yeah. To uh, for the demand. Okay. And in the region where I come from, which is Sicily, Sicilia, it's a very, very long tradition. We are, I think, experts of water-based gelato, and especially its ancestor, which is called granita.
0: Granita.
3: Yes, yeah, something that you know as a slushy. What do you mean, water-based as opposed to dairy? Uh, correct. And, uh, something that happened in Sicily since the Romans... Mm-hmm. is the fact that they used to mix in summer fruit juice with the snow from the mountains. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sicily has a lot of mountains like the rest of Italy, so there's plenty of
0: snow, and they used to mix. So even those. back in Roman times? Oh, yeah. Obviously, yeah. no electricity, no refrigerators. They yeah, would go up into the mountains, collect the snow, bring it down, mix Yes, fruit. actually,
3: they were preserving the snow in caves. Okay. And that led them providing snow in summer as well. All year long. Like yes, all year be- wrong. Plus, Sicily had a lot of salt harvest. Mm-hmm. And if you put salt with ice, the temperature will drop.
0: And they will also preserving that. Your favorite uh, gelato flavor is uh, coffee. Does that have caffeine in it? I mean, can oh, yes, you, you, get a, you get a with real hit? Coffee. Yeah, you get a, yeah, a yeah. caffeine hit. Yeah. With, and that's why you were such a busy toddler. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay. Anna, tell me about your favorite, and you're from Siena. Tell me about your favorite uh, gelateria in, in Siena and uh, what your thoughts are on the best flavor and some memories that it inspires.
4: Well, my absolute all-time favorite flavor is pistacchio, pistachio, which I get every time with some other flavor. Doesn't matter what flavor, but always pistacchio as the base. That's right. how I judge a good gelateria. And my favorite gelateria in Siena is probably the smallest one. I think the best gelaterie in general are the small ones without the bells and whistles, no frills, very small Containers freshly made gelato and my favorite time is to go towards the end of the day when I know they're just about to make one last batch and I wait for it to come out of the machine and they just put the cup right under it and give it to me fresh. So this freshness is oh, something,
0: yes. I mean, I don't think the typical American considers fresh when it yeah. comes to ice cream or gelato but Absolutely. you're actually hanging around till the next batch.
4: Yes, yeah. yes. There are over 37,000 gelaterie in Italy apparently, I read this, but all of them are fresh and as Alfio says, if there is leftover gelaterie gelato and they're trying to serve it to you the next day, bad gelateria, Benji. do not go there.
0: We're talking about seasonal. You go to your favorite gelateria in Siena, mm. would they serve different flavors at different seasons, actually?
4: Yes, depending on, and actually they're closed in the winter season as well, so right. a lot of the best places are also closed because people don't, I don't know what these people are, but some people don't like to eat gelato when <laughs> it's cold outside. <laughs> okay,
0: but in the summer, what, what's an example of when you would find one flavor and, and not another flavor?
3: Well, all of the fruit gelato, for example. Uh-huh. All of the uh, fruit you have in the summer, like a peach okay, or so a fresh mulberry. Fresh strawberries. Absolutely. Yeah. And your smile just has strawberry
0: gelato written <laughs> yeah. all over and it. And
3: the bonus in Sicily <laughs> is that gelateria are open
0: all year. Ah. In Sicily. Not in Count on Alfio to be oh, a walking yes. <laughs> promotion for this beautiful island. So what is just, let's get down to basics here. I mean, because Americans say ice cream. Ice cream and gelato, what's the difference physically?
4: The big differences are the amount of air, milk versus cream, and the temperature it's served at. So gelato is served a few degrees warmer than ice cream. Ice cream has a lot more air in it, up to 50% more air, and when you have the air, you get ice crystals forming, so it can be crunchier but also fluffier, whereas gelato is much denser and creamier, even though they use milk and not cream.
0: That's sort of counterintuitive. So they use the Mm -hmm. lighter version of milk, and it is denser and more flavorful.
4: And way healthier. It's good for you. And healthier.
3: Another difference (laughs) is that ice cream has more sugar. Yes. And in fact, it has more calories, even if it has more air in it, because of the dairy and the sugar. Yeah. So why order ice cream? Correct. In (laughs) fact, what kills me as an Italian is when I see gelateria that also advertise they sell ice cream. In Italy? Yes. Oh, you're kidding. Because they, we're they trying say... to get the English-speaking tourists, mm, never... but these two words should never be used together. They're not synonyms at all. And I think we should inform travelers that gelato and ice cream are different.
0: Let it be known right here Correct. on, on Travel with why, Rick Steves yes. that gelato is different than yes. ice cream. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anna Tepperato and Alfio Morro, And our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Chris is on the line from Chula Vista in California. Chris, thanks for calling. My pleasure. Well, I'm getting hungry just listening to this conversation. Me too. My question is, um, I've tried to replicate the flavors and the creaminess of gelato here in the States, but I haven't been successful. I wonder if you could point me towards some recipes that will enable me to enjoy that wonderful experience stateside.
4: Well, I would recommend that you enroll in a four week course at the Gelato University outside of Bologna. They have courses oh. in English.
0: <laughs> four week course. Yes. Gelato. Gelato. Fine art of gelato. Uh, Chris,
4: Do they have scholarships? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they should.
3: Uh, Chris, the problem is that the technology for the gelato is a little tricky. The mm. freezing part is what probably is where you are going to have some problems why the deliver of the low temperature Mm. should happen in such a short time because a normal refrigerator at home in the freezer it doesn't have that power so basically what means is that the longer it takes to form the crystals the bigger they will be and that is bad gelato okay the faster you can froze, the mm. better the quality because the crystal would be imperceptible in your tongue. Okay, so that's why you cannot get good gelato home because you don't have the equipment to do so it. So the texture is a, is texture. a fundamental yeah. thing yeah. about gelato because, because it
0: is like almost sexy.
3: Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you, that's the right
0: word. That's the right word. You know, I mean, I was just thinking there's no other word. Yeah, it's, because you, you cannot feel the you, ice particle. You drag your tongue yeah. over it. Correct. And you just love it. Yeah.
3: And what you can, something you can do, Chris, about it is that you put your solution in the freezer and you take out and mix it, and then put it back. Take out and mix it. That, Anti-crystals. Yes, and that mixing will help. That's fun. That's not, a very not good getting practical tip. Big crystals in it. Okay, so it's not your fault, but good ice <laughs> machines are expensive. You know, the professional stuff it costs mm-hmm. about thirty thousand dollars. Wow. One. So, of course, they make two kilos of gelato in in, in ten minutes. Uh, so, big production. But for the Italian,
0: that's a small price to pay. For <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What
3: about ingredients? Because Italy is all about ingredients. It's all about ingredients. You know, uh, we were mentioning about favorite flavors. Of course, when I was uh, a boy, I was not into coffee. That happens later. But I like all of the fruit gelato and the chocolate and all of that. What is special is that they always start from scratch, from the fruit of the season. So the best thing you can do if you're in the right gelateria, you get, I don't know, pear, gelato, apple, peach, mulberry, watermelon.
0: Sounds like I should book my uh, trip to Bologna next time. <laughs> I, I think, think you should.
3: <laughs> and then to Sicily.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Happy travels.
3: So Happy gelato licking.
0: Tour guides Anna Piperato from Tuscany and Alfio Di from Sicily are opening our palettes to the pleasures of really good gelato in Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Alinda's calling in from Deerfield Beach in Florida. Alinda, do you have any gelato dreams to share?
5: Well, yes. I had a few questions first question I have was sort of related to what was asked by the last caller. How come gelato is so much better in Italy than at the places in the United States where I've had it? My second question was just where's the best place for gelato in Rome is? If there's a thought on that. And then my third question was I noticed that everyone seemed to be eating Nutella. That seemed to be so popular. And my favorite is actually Nutella, the hazelnut. Mm-hmm, I just sort mm-hmm. of... Nutella. So I wanted to have answers to a bunch of
0: questions. All right, Elinda, thanks for the call. And, and first of all, Nutella is a flavor I encounter a lot. Nutella. That's hazelnut. Yes. Yes. Hazelnut, And correct. Nutella is this children's chocolate yeah, sort of peanut which butter. Maize,
3: it's right. made with, with hazelnut, also. And that's Nutella. why I asked about
5: that Nutella because it just didn't sound appealing to me at all.
0: Is there Nutella gelato? Yes. There are some flavors. Is that a gimmick, or is that a good flavor, would
5: you Uh, say?
4: It's good flavor, but
3: but it's a little too rich, a little too creamy.
4: Nutella Uh, makes zits happen immediately.
0: Nutella makes
4: zits happen? Immediately.
0: That explains it. It
4: does. But Nutella is at least an Italian product from... Yeah. Piemonte, so... <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a huge hit around here. But yes. if you wanted, you could have chocolate and Nocella, two flavors.
4: Nocella, which is much nicer, yeah. and especially this. There you go, the because the that's essentially hazelnuts. what Nutella is, yes. or is.
0: chocolate. you can
3: get huh. Mm. Oh. Bacho is the flavor that is made with chocolate and hazelnut. That means kiss, doesn't it? It means kiss, correct, because there's a famous chocolate that's, that's, that's called yeah.
0: bacho that lovers There you go. So if you want San Nutella, Valentine's. you're not limited to the word Nutella. You can no. go down to basics. Uh, absolutely. Okay, yeah. and yeah. Elinda was asking... If you're in a city, I mean, when I was in Florence, of course, for many years, yeah. uh, Vivolis, everybody mm. went to Vivolis. Yeah. And in Rome, everybody would go to Giolitti. These places, they get famous, and then they're still good, but maybe they're not worth their yeah. reputation. How do you know the best place to go in now, a city like I, I Rome will
3: tell France? I will tell you how to search for the good gelato, because this is what you need to know. When I lead tours, I warn tour members to stay away from this humongous hills of gelato that you see on the main streets in Rome and Florence. The natural gelato, the original, the authentic, genuine, cannot stand that position. The gelato, to be that tall over the container, must be pumped in fat. And that is not natural gelato. We're getting
0: closer to the ice cream we were talking before. In order for it to be exposed to the air, because from an advertising point of view you see a mountain of purple and green yeah, and brown. Correct. Well
3: and just imagine is hundred out at fire night you are in June in Rome. Right. And you see that it's like seeing a nose on a desert. So you you go there. Yeah. You think
0: you're getting a real thing, but it's not. Okay, so that's just to catch your eyes.
3: And but the color a
4: also co- is... Co-
0: correct. So what about the color?
4: Well, when you see bright blue gelato that's piled this high and it's Smurf-flavored, you should stay away from it.
0: So you want natural <laughs> colors, you want it not stacked high, but even low with a lid on Correct. It. I, yes. I, I see a lot of places uh, have a absolutely. lid on it. Absolutely.
3: When you see pistachio or pistachio, mm. which is bright green, you run opposite direction exactly. from it. yes. What I always say to people is, in nature, bright color are usually a sign of danger.
4: Except <laughs> for strawberries. The strawberry gelato can be quite bright if okay. it's very, Okay, good fresh. to
3: know that exception. Correct. Mint is never <laughs> yeah. green. Mint is white. Mint is white? Yes, okay. absolutely. So, shape of gelato, flat, right. possibly covered with a lead. Color... And then you can see if a gelato was freshly made or not because the freshly made as you were talking before is kind of it looks smooth and inviting and very soft.
0: I find that the young generation of local people know where the good gelato is and yes. every year there's yeah. a different place that has the long line Correct. especially in the evening. Correct. Is that a good sign if you see the kids lining up or is that just because it's a popular place?
3: It's usually is a good sign. Okay. But Uh, Something that I think everybody should be aware of between, you know, difference between the lifestyle in U.S. and lifestyle in Italy, U.S. has big brands. Mm -hmm. And all of those big brands are, you can find all of them everywhere you go from east to west coast. Right. Italy instead, we have so many little gelatria, they are family run. It's not a chain. So you will never find the same brands with a a, a
0: passion, with a
3: local following. So basically, what you have to know is, you need to live there a little bit and somehow become local, and then you will have this universe that opens in front of you to find all of the favorite spots. Yeah,
4: but this is also really fun research to do. Go to the one with the bright blue gelato and try it. And then go to the place where the lids are over all the flavors and try that. And right. do a lot of research. You can do research on gelato three times a day. It's healthy.
0: And, and you can, <laughs> in Italy, it's a, a tradition that you can taste it. And you can, you can taste two or three flavors before you buy a cup. Oh, absolutely. How do you ask for a, a taste? What do you say? Uh, Posso assaggiare. Can I sample? Assaggiare. 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 Now we're talking about family, mom and pops and everything, but what I see in all over Europe popping up like Starbucks on the main corner is Grom, G-R-O-M. What's the deal with Grom? Because that's the new Starbucks of gelato in Italy.
4: Yes, well, Grom, I have a love-hate relationship with Grom because I'm very happy that this company was started by some 20-somethings from Turin, which is where I lived for almost two years. Mm -hmm. And uh, they wanted to get back to the original way of producing ice cream. uh, Sorry, gelato. Oh, Oh, my God. Edit that out. (laughs) um, Of producing gelato because the founder of the slow food movement, which is from Mm Piemonte. Uh, said gelato is just not what it used to be. So these young oh, okay. entrepreneurs, which is quite rare in Italy, especially with all the economic crises going on, they decided to make gelato the way it used to be made. And their flagship store is in Turin, right by the main train station. They have another one by the Egyptian Museum in Turin. Fantastic. Two other stores. Now they have 34 cities in Italy, have groms. There's one in New York City, there's one in Paris, there's one in Tokyo. But if I couldn't defend them, they have their own farm in Piemonte, and they grow all their own fruits and they make their own flavors, and they send out three times a week these flavors to their shops all over Italy. So, to... has,
0: has bigness uh, hurt their their ethic?
4: No, it has not okay. yet. Yet. <laughs> so, so,
0: in other words, it started with a good mission, mm-hmm. good uh, slow food ideals. Yes. Very successful now. Quality still good. Yes. And the only reason not to go there is if you just like to support mom and pops as opposed to big corporations. Yeah, yes. Yeah.
3: In fact, you will not find any grumps south of Rome.
5: But you mentioned they're yeah. in Tokyo, so you're saying if you want to get good Italian gelato outside of Italy, you should go to Grom. Is that what
4: you're suggesting? Well, it's a New- good compromise. Yes. It's
3: a good compromise between a franchising
0: and a good quality product.
4: Mm, yes. There's one yeah. in New York City, yeah. a bit closer.
0: So, uh, And another question Elinda had was, why is it better in Italy? Is it possible to find good? Is it just a matter of having the gear and the ingredients?
3: Well, what you need to do is just getting the right ingredients first. And then the right technology. Mm -hmm. All right. And then you have to have a
0: certain consumption and you keep it fresh. Elinda, thanks so much for your call and happy
4: gelato
5: eating. Bye now. I'm looking forward to gelato three times a day as they recommend it. Absolutely.
3: (laughs) And remember, water based gelato has less less calories. (laughs) Less calories. Happy (laughs) travels, Elinda.
5: Thank you.
0: We've got another scoop of gelato just ahead with Alfio and Anna. And then, the Moorlands of England have long served as the setting for moody and mysterious novels. But they also happen to be a great place for a peaceful interlude with nature in the English countryside. Find out why in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves.
4: Hello, my name is Ilva. I live in Stockholm, Sweden. I have a tongue twister (laughs) for you. In the Swedish language, we have a sound that sounds like this, and the tongue twister sounds like this. Sju sjömän av sju på det Shanghai. Which means, seven seasick sailors are nursed by seven beautiful nurses on the sinking ship of Shanghai. In Swedish, that would be sju
0: this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about gelato with Anna Piperato and Alfio De Moro, two friends and tour guides from Italy. Stephanie emailed us from Boston and Stephanie writes Can people with a lactose intolerance eat gelato without having stomach problems? Good question. What about uh, lactose free or non dairy options?
3: Oh, absolutely. You have plenty of choice of fruit gelato which usually are water-based. So that means they have no dairy of any...
0: Is that the same as uh, sorbet?
3: Yes. Sorbet is a word that comes from sherbet. Sherbet
0: was this... So in uh, America, I think we say sherbet in French, sorbet. In Italy, what? Sorbetto. Sorbetto.
3: Sorbetto. Actually, technically, you should call the water-based gelato sorbetto. Technically, that's the uh, the right definition. It's something that happened, actually, where I'm from, when the Arabs introduced from Persia the sugar cane, the first sugar ever came to Europe that is not honey is the sugar cane that the mm. Arabs brought to Sicily in the ninth century. And they, with that sugar, they mixed to the Roman snow with the, with mm. the fruit, and they created
0: the sherbet. They call sherbet, which later on was Absolutely. called Lydia mean, Lydia's calling from Boulder, Colorado. Lydia, thanks for your call.
5: Buongiorno, Buongiorno Lydia. everyone. Buongiorno. I have I have one question and then just I'll tell you about my experience in Sorrento. But my question is how do I get paid to taste and write about gelato in Italy? I have to go back. <laughs>
0: Line up. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody wants. You know, you're going to have to just work hard here and then go over there and, and, and be on vacation and eat gelato
4: exactly. everywhere you Start go. Start a blog. <laughs> uh,
5: but I, I want to live there. I, I truly believe I've gotten a taste of Italy and I really want to savor it now. I, there's several places I would love to go back to and I really love Sorrento. I was quite surprised. I, I don't like big cities and mm-hmm. I loved Rome. But anyway, in Sorrento, on the way out of town, we stopped at a shop and actually got a little class in sorbet making. And how was that? Oh, (laughs) it was so amazing. You know, once we put the ingredients into the the freezer that they had, the very expensive freezers, you know, 10 minutes later, we were eating heaven in my Are you talking about Gelateria uh, David?
3: David. David, Mario is the... I, I love that. Expert. That must be it because yeah. he
0: has a wonderful outreach
3: yeah, absolutely. to people for appreciating. Yeah. 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 He, he does such an amazing yes. job. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
5: All right. It was David, and he gave yeah. me recipes, and yes. I I don't know where they are. I lo- I ended up losing my journal. <laughs>
3: if you Google Gelateria David in Sorrento, you'll find the email address. you write yeah. to Mario. Mario is the guy. And then as soon or later, he uh-huh. will reply back at you, and, and he will send the recipes and that's, again.
0: That's David, like David, D-A-V-I-D.
3: gelateria. All right,
0: good. Lydia, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about gelato with Alfio Di Mauro and Anna Pipparato. We could talk forever about gelato, but just share one moment of how you're just, everything is right. Everything comes together. You're in the right place at the right time with the right gelato. Anna.
4: Well, I guess as not being a native Italian speaker, the first time I was able to properly order a pistacchio with, of course, my favorite fragola next to it and pay in lira, Uh, that was a fantastic moment in Florence when I was a student all those years ago. To get the gelato you want. To order it in Italian as well. Yeah. Oh, man.
0: I I can remember sitting on the porch of the Pantheon just savoring what I've just experienced with my cone of gelato. I can... I can remember doing the passeggiata with the gelato in Sorrento. Oh,
4: are you a cup or a cone guy? Because this is quite important, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, it It is important. Well, I'm
0: I'm a cup guy.
4: I'm a cup guy, uh, girl. Whatever. Uh, (laughs) All equal here because
0: you you get the question at the gelateria is a cup or cono, right?
3: Yes,
4: and a copa,
0: cono, copa or cono.
4: There's a really funny anecdote about the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904 when there were gelato stands and there were waffle stands and the ice cream maker, basically, he ran out of cups. And so the waffle guy said, here, why don't I roll my waffle and you can use it as a cornucopia? It was a Syrian-American immigrant, and that turned into the cone.
0: The waffle cone. Yes. How? So. But I'm still a cup person.
4: I'm still a cup person, too, because it doesn't detract from the flavor of the pistachio
0: and you can take all the time you want and not exactly. be stressed out about catching those dribbles. Exactly. <laughs> <That's true.
4: laughs> that's true. Exactly. The only
0: relaxing is not to worry about the dribbles. Well, the exactly. only difference is that usually
3: Italians prefer a cono because you can eat a cono with one hand and you can do a hand gesture with the other. Oh, that exactly. if you're telling it you have to do that. <laughs> you cannot. <laughs> and that means Italians they have some uh, speech impediment if they cannot move their hands like I'm doing right now. So that's why you can be a con kind of guy. But also there's a third option which is the gelato in a bun. A brioche, it is called. Mm, 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 mm. Huh. And this, when we were kids, this was lunch in summer days. Oh, my goodness. So you have a sweet pan, you open it in a half, and you put three scoops of gelato in it and whipped cream on top. It's very full of calories, but you're a young boy, it's summer, you've been playing with your friends Paradiso all day, for lunch And then you can burn all these calories, and it's the best lunch I remember <laughs> when I was a kid. Gelato con brioche. Can I add one more thing? Yeah. Sometimes you see gelato makers that they roll their eyes because American tourists ask too much. Chocolata and limone. There are certain flavors you don't match together. And certainly one of those is very acidic flavors like limone lemon with chocolate or nuts in general okay so please work on your matches and try to get similar things together there's certain contrasts that play well like strawberries and chocolate that's good oranges and chocolate that's okay but do not ask for the limone to coexist <laughs> in the same cup or corner with the chocolate, please.
4: Or, as my mum says, I'm on holiday. I can do what I like. So uh. just look <laughs> up, just look apologetic and do your research and keep doing it yeah, and keep but trying. At least
3: now you know <laughs> now why you know. people roll their eyes. Why they roll their eyes? Yes.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much and bon appetito, <laughs> buon gelato. The Bronte sisters live near the moors of West Yorkshire, a landscape made famous by Emily Bronte as the setting for the classic novel Withering Heights. Bronte described it as a place where you can see the country beautifully all around and the air is healthier for you, fresher and drier. The upland moors of North Yorkshire are now a national park with miles of quiet hiking and bird viewing to stir your imagination. To help us understand what the moors offer us as a way to enjoy the wilds of England, we're joined now by British tour guides Tom Hooper and Roy Nichols. Roy and Tom, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much. Roy, you know, people refer to the moors, but I don't think they actually know. In fact, I don't know for
2: sure exactly what it is. What is a moor? Well, it's easy to define. It's an upland area where there's high rainfall, you have a very acidic soil, and the combination of the two, the acidic soil, the high rainfall poor drainage give you a very impoverished soil, very acidic. Sure. Mm. You can't do much except graze your cattle exactly. on it. Exactly. So you're going to have very poor grazing, a limited number of plant species, very boggy, very wet. And so really sheep are the only thing that actually survives. Two, two,
6: The two big species you'd expect would be the common heather, coluna vulgaris, which is very common in most moors, and also bogs which are dried out to make peat, sphagnum moss that has died
0: it was my sense that there's a heritage that these things were sort of uh, public property, commons,
2: areas where anybody could graze their cattle. Well, they were for a long, long time through the medieval period, but then the, with the rise of the great estates created by the great industrials of the 18th and 19th century, they started enclosing much of the common land throughout Britain, particularly in England. And so a lot of these moorland areas that had been common land beforehand were denied to the, most of the population. Because these are so barren and so poor for
0: farming and so sparsely populated that only later on in the history then would they be, the ownership would be asserted and they would actually build stone walls, but they, they still have that, that windy, desolate character, even though technically they might be owned. Oh, it's some somebody. of the most evocative scenery in the British Isles, and you find it throughout the British Isles, Tom Hooper, if I'm traveling around England and I want to visit some moors, what, what are a few of the great moors that I might want to consider visiting?
6: Well, the, the most famous are going to be in the southwest. They're going to be Exmoor and Dartmoor. Exmoor and Dartmoor, yeah. down by Cornwall. And, Cornwall. Going, yeah. and there are smaller ones, including Bobbin Moor and Cornwall. Uh-huh. And then, of course, if you go up further to the north and the east, you get to the North York Moors. Now, this would be if you use York as a home base, you could hop off from there to visit you this. Could, you could then go further up north. Oh, right.
2: yeah. And yeah. you have other upland areas, yeah. like yes. you've got the Yorkshire Dales to the west of the Yorkshire Moors, separated by the Yorkshire Dales. Yorkshire Dales, a lot of people consider James Harriet country. It is, yeah. That's the area he wrote about, although he actually lived closer to the Yorkshire Moors. And although they're strictly not speaking moorland areas, they have many of the aspects of uh, these moorland areas. Now, every time I go into the Moors or the Dales, I'm sort of...
0: Inspired, wishing I was a little more literary, because there is a, a lot of literary connections mm-hmm. with these
2: moors, Roy. Just uh, when you think about the, the literature connection to moors and dales, what are what are some? Well, names the first thing that know. comes to the mind is books like Wuthering Heights. Mm-hmm. Um, the Brontës lived in the Yorkshire moors and wrote about the area, and so many of their books, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, are all set in the Yorkshire moors. Tom, some other literary. Uh, well, if you go
6: down westwards with Exmoor, you have Lorna Doon, and further west, you've got Daphne du Maurier's Jamaica Inn, which is set on Bob Moor. You know, even in modern times, Ted Hughes's poetry, his ashes are sprinkled on Dartmoor. Yeah. How of the Baskervilles? How of the Baskervilles is also Dartmoor, yeah. yes. Foxtel and then you get Mild.
2: obscure books like uh, writers like Mary Webb, who was a writer in Shropshire, where I come from, who wrote a famous book. This is largely out of print called Gone to Earth. Mm. And yet it was one of the most famous of the Victorian novels in the late 19th century.
0: We're venturing into the moors of England with a good pair of walking shoes and maybe something to fend off an unexpected spot of rain. Our guests on Travel with Rick Steves are British tour guides Roy Nichols and Tom Hooper. You can post a short note about your own tales of exploring the moorlands in our online listener forum. You'll find that at ricksteves.com/radio. Roy, if you were walking through the North York Moors, what's something that you might come upon? that reminds you why
2: this is a great place to go and explore? Well, it's for me, it's the remoteness and the sense of isolation, a sense of peace, a sense of separateness from it. It's a very ancient area, of course, and in fact, North York Moors has one of the most famous, the Roman roads running across the... You can actually see Roman cobbles, Roman... Roman stones yes most roman roads were actually sort of graveled Mm -hmm. um, but this is actually paved and for a stretch of several hundred meters you can actually follow the roman road tom hooper what's a sort of a evocative moment you might find uh, in a
0: moor
6: for me it's the windswept desolation of it and walking through this extraordinary as you walk you disturb the heather it smells and you come across suddenly a tiny prehistoric remain or something like that and it's completely unexpected, nobody is around, it's utterly remote. It's your private it's discovery. It's your discovery.
0: There's the wind, there's a few stray sheep, yeah. Yes. there's a stone circle yes. that nobody knows about. And the Brits love their um, ordnance survey maps. Yes. Are those still the tool to
6: take? Uh, they are still, but if you wait a little while, the paper ones will disappear and it'll all be... With technology, so you can get your um, you can your get Google, Google, map, Google going. map going and oh, okay, and Ordnance Survey will be on the Ordnance Survey. You can get an app for Ordnance Survey. Oh, but okay,
0: it, I because I I just love the old-fashioned Ordnance yeah.
6: Survey maps, but I would imagine now you get an well, it's a an app an, an app application for, the, for a tablet basically, and you can download the maps from that. All right, I agree with you with the paper ones, by the way, because there's nothing like rain soaking through a paper well, map. And can you are like really earning the mm, wonder of it all.
2: Can I just give a vote for the old paper ones because you can get them vinyl covered these days. You can. So they don't disintegrate in the rain. And there's nothing like, like a real book as opposed to a Kindle, there's nothing like a proper map. But maps are really important on areas like the moorland areas. Oh, yeah. Because they be, can become very, very dangerous. Yes. Tom's mentioned the The weather box. can change Rain can come down, the mist can come down, and you need to be able to accurately navigate. Of course,
6: funnily enough, some of these are also places where the Ministry of Defence have... That's right. That's right. And That's right. And they are not mapped much at all. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to stumble onto a, a bombing no. site. But it's, you know, which which, it's which you can easily do <laughs> in areas like Dartmoor and Northumberland Moors. I remember once trying I've to tape <laughs> a
0: TV bit, and I could not get my bit done because there was all these explosions no. going off behind me. And we chose a very scenic area mm. that happened to be a, a yeah, military Yeah, the military area.
2: love scenic areas.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Why is that? So now, what, what's another tip if you're going to enjoy wh what, what were the handful of most important tips if you're exploring the oh, moors?
6: I, th- I think the other thing is you, you have to, at some point, come off the moors and into the villages and the moors mm-hmm. because they are gritty, in whether it's granite or some other stone. And these villages have a character themselves and are always welcoming, nothing like a pub with a good fire. And, and it doesn't equipment. matter where you are, whether it's the Yorkshire moors, the Yorkshire yeah. dales, or down in Devon. Dun- quite sensibly,
2: the farmers would build their houses, they would build their villages down in the sheltered valleys so that you come down off the tops into these lovely quaint villages. Chagford on Dartmoor.
6: Chagford,
0: I love that town. There's a and b in Chagford that's incredible. In my younger days, I used to stay in the youth hostel in Gidley and then Chagford is a nice place. You know, people complain about the rain. I don't know, but I like coming into a pub in the middle of this wonderland outside, and my glasses are all fogged up because it's so warm and cozy. There is something inside.
6: extraordinarily cozy about
2: that and sort of enveloping. Enveloping is the
0: mm. word. And there's a and there's famous clothes.
6: pub
2: on Exmoor where the fire has been going. I think it's the it's the Royal Oak the in, Royal? Winstow. Yeah, that's... in Winstow. The fire has been burning for 500 years, and
6: they've never let it go no, out. They've still not been able to put it out.
2: <laughs> I
6: want to
0: go there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about fires that have been burning for 500 years. We're talking to enjoying wild ponies and heather and walking on ancient Roman roads and then stepping into a pub and wiping the condensation off your glasses and realizing you're part of the family. You're welcome. Sit down by the fire. Here's a nice What kind of a what, hot drink would you have?
2: It was What out. kind of hot drink would I? Have? I'm in English. Uh, I would like a cup of tea. A cup of tea. That's right.
0: that's cup, what you'd a have. A cup
2: of
6: a tea. G- a <laughs> cup of tea. The one one other tip is don't walk into a bog. Although you'll be there 2,000 years later, you'll be part of a museum 2,000 years later. (laughs) The bogs. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring the moors with Roy Nichols
0: and Tom Hooper. Thank you guys so much. This has been fascinating. Again, it's a pleasure, Rick.
6: Thank you very much. (laughs) Still, I stand this very day with a burning wish to fly.
7: Looking
1: looking for the summer
0: Some of our listeners turn their travels into an evocative haiku poem. There's a link to send us your own original travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Here are a few we thought you might enjoy.
7: Mary E. Croy of Reedsburg, Wisconsin, wrote us this haiku while enjoying the beach at a resort island off the eastern coast of Thailand. Koh Sumet white sand. Frothy spring sea invites us. Cautious toes take plunge. Holly Vendawa in Boston enjoyed the long days of summer in Sweden. Summer sun glows on spires across the water, Stockholm 10 at night. Neil Ruddy from Carlisle, Iowa, watched the shorebirds on a trip to Florida. Pelicans catch the fish. Little terns just sit there and catch the tidbits. And the birds gave Varun Lakshman Westcott of Woodenville, Washington, something to remember. Seagulls gliding by, a great day at the ocean. There go my crackers. Travel
1: with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac kaplan wolner and Kaz Mara Hall. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Tim Underwood Productions in Bend, Oregon, for studio help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio.
4: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.